This is exactly right. Forgive me for interrupting. I'm Bridger Weiniger, host of I Said No Gifts on Exactly Right. Each week, I invite my favorite people in comedy over to chat, and they always bring a gift. We're coming up on our 200th episode, and every episode is a gem. I have welcomed all kinds of great guests, including Cola Scola, Bowen Yang, Robbie Hoffman. It goes on and on and on. And you don't want to miss the 200th episode with the great Maria Bamford. What does she bring me? Find out April 25th. New episodes every Thursday. Follow I Said No Gifts wherever you get your podcasts. This story contains adult content and language, along with references to sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised. a loaded gun that was probably going to go off at somewhere at some point. But I think that that neighbor really helped her pull the trigger. The neighbor put her over the edge. Former chorus girl Clara Phillips was furious with Alberta Meadows, the woman who she suspected was sleeping with her husband, Armour. She lured Alberta up to Montecito Heights, along with Clara's good friend, Peggy Caffey. Clara confronted Alberta in a terrible argument in a desolate turnoff from the main road. Clara pulled out a hammer from underneath her cloak and raised it. When Alberta Meadows put her hand up, she screamed for Peggy Caffey. It was in the early evening on Wednesday, July 12, 1922. Clara quickly hit Alberta on the head with the hammer, knocking her hat off. Alberta screamed, grabbed her head, and stumbled backward. The hit hadn't been hard enough to stun her, so she might have been able to get away. She didn't expect Clara to come at her with a hammer or any kind of weapon, because if she had, I think she would have tried to put up a fight, but I didn't think that Alberta was the fighting kind. You know, she wasn't aggressive. She ran, though. Oh, she ran because she was trying to get away from the hammer blows. She managed to start to run with Clara hot on her heels. While Alberta ran down the road, screaming, Peggy ran up the road, away from Clara as fast as she could. Clara looked back at Peggy and yelled, Damn you, get away or I'll kill you. Peggy was terrified. She scrambled through the dirt and up the hill. She thought she could hear Clara right behind her. Then she reached a dead end and turned around. Clara hadn't followed her. She had chased after Alberta down the hill. Alberta was running fast, holding her bloody head and hoping to find someone to help her. She was desperate. But then it happened, like a scene from a bad horror film. Alberta Meadows broke the heel of her shoe. And then soon, Clara was standing in front of her once again. Alberta was exhausted and crying. They were both panting. And what would happen next would earn Clara Phillips the nickname Tiger Woman. Peggy stood at the top of the hill, nearly weeping. Alberta begged for Peggy to save her as Clara Phillips raised the hammer once again. Alberta yelled, my God, save me, help me, help me. Clara was furious. She started choking Alberta and she screamed at Peggy, don't you interfere, damn you, or I'll kill you. Then she hit Alberta with the hammer again, and again, and again. 
Clara's great-nephew, Daniel Phillips, says Peggy was in an impossible position. Peggy was just as surprised as Alberta was when she used it. Clara basically threatened her and said, you know, leave me alone or you'll get some of this. Alberta Meadows struggled to her feet and ran for her life. Her heel was broken and she tumbled down the rocky slope and onto the dirt road. The sun glowed as it set over the ocean. Clara ran faster down the hill and slid to a stop. She stood over Alberta, trying to catch her breath. She still had the hammer in her hand. Peggy watched. Clara wasn't a big woman. She might have been able to run quickly, but Alberta still had time to escape. Peggy's knees were weak, and she thought she might pass out. She watched Clara Phillips bend down over Alberta Meadows with the hammer in her hand. Writer Joan Renner says that newspapers would reprint these next details for years afterward. She batters her to the ground. Alberta, who really didn't know Peggy, is looking at her, shouting, Lady, help me, please, help me. Peggy didn't move. She stayed quiet. Alberta blacked out while Clara continued beating her over the head over and over again. Peggy watched the blood gush as the hammer flung it backward. Peggy was terrified, and there was nothing she could do. She just stepped back from uh, the assault. She saw that she wasn't going to be able to stop him without getting herself harmed. After it was completed, you know, she threw up. Clara was in a fury. She was like an animal attacking its prey. You can see it was a, a massive head wound. There was a lot of blood and there was also brain matter that had come out of her skull and into the dirt you got to remember how young she was, you know, 22, 23. No one in her short life had enraged her that much yet. This seemed like a crime of passion committed by an unstable woman who just snapped. Except Clara had planned it so well. She accomplished her goal, like what we talked about before with psychopaths. She had eliminated her competition. Alberta Meadows had lost her husband, the love of her life, just a few months earlier. And now she was dead. Then Clara Phillips did something that made her infamous, a fixture in true crime history. It's not clear to me if Clara thought that Alberta was going to rise from the dead, but she rolled this 50-pound boulder on Alberta's chest. That detail has been a big part of this story's lore. 50 pounds seems like a little too much for a fairly petite woman to push over on top of a body. But Clara was fueled by adrenaline and anger. And despite other reports, the boulder was just found on Alberta's arm. There were also loads of boulders on the slope above Alberta's body. One could have slid down the hill and on top of her before she was discovered. Anyway, the story of the boulder is one of the most enduring descriptions from the tragedy of Alberta Meadows. And all of this began with a rumor whispered into the ear of an unstable person. And there doesn't seem to be any concrete proof from anybody that they actually had an affair of any kind. It was all innuendo. Everything about the depth of that relationship was glamorized by the press. It just became a life of its own. Peggy Caffey began to black out from fear or self-preservation or both. Then she heard wheels on the dirt road near her. A horn was blaring. It was Clara driving the car she had just admired. She had taken Alberta's new Ford coupe as well as her handbag. 
Clara told Peggy, get in. And of course, Peggy did, quickly. Clara gets back in the car. Peggy is still just emotional and a mess over what she just witnessed. This is not what she expected to have happen at all. Peggy looked over at her friend. Clara was covered in blood. Her dress, her hands, her face were all red. She complained about a hurt finger. Peggy looked down. The bloody hammer lay in the car's floorboard at her feet. She was terrified. But Clara seemed very, very calm. She even smiled. But then she turned quickly on Peggy. Along the drive, she was saying to Peggy, don't say anything, this could happen to you. And Peggy said, I don't want it to happen to me. Drove all the way to Long Beach. There was no, eh, let's just keep it between us. She made it clear that you're not going to cross me because if you do, there's a price to pay. Clara coolly gave her friend a series of orders. She said, let me have your gloves. Peggy handed her a pair of long white gloves from her purse to cover up Clara's bloodstained hands. Clara drove with one hand as she slid each one on. She told Peggy, wipe the blood from my face. Peggy took out a white handkerchief and patted Clara's cheeks. Clara took off several rings, which were gummed up with blood that was now clotting. Clara had taken them from the dead woman's body. Alberta's handbag sat between them on the seat. Clara dropped the rings inside the bag and turned to Peggy. She said, you will remember that Mrs. Meadows got these from my husband. Peggy was quiet. I do wonder if Peggy knew this was a lie. There's no evidence that Alberta and Armour were having an affair. It's likely that when Armour was confronting Clara about her own affair, he put Alberta Meadows right in the middle of it just to irritate Clara. Alberta's death had been such a horrible ending for a woman with so much promise, such a bright future. Clara yelled at Peggy again to not tell anyone, even her husband. Her friend nodded and agreed to be quiet. She was just terrified. She didn't want to tell anyone anything. As the pair drove toward Peggy's apartment in Long Beach, Peggy wondered if Clara had a plan or a conscience. Clara didn't seem excited or nervous. There was a fire in her eyes. Peggy asked if she felt guilty. Clara replied, no. She would absolutely kill anyone who threatened her marriage. Now this was clear. Dr. Craig Newman is an expert in psychopathy, and he says that there's a common misconception about psychopaths that they were born without fear. While Claire's response seems to suggest that she's fearless, it might actually be a good example of a theory in psychopathy called the response modulation hypothesis. The new research that's coming out that shows that psychopathic individuals can upregulate emotion suggests that fear is there, but it's when they become so singly focused on a goal, they don't feel fear because of an attentional disturbance. If you take psychopathic individuals and you focus their attention to fear-based types of threats, they do show fear. So it's not that Clara Phillips was an extreme risk taker or she feared being caught. Two of the traits of psychopaths on Hare's checklist are over-impulsiveness and extreme irresponsibility. But those are not consistent characteristics in every situation for a psychopath. They might be manipulative or violent, or both, but only if it serves a specific crucial goal that's worth taking a risk. So it may be a sort of a, a, a single-mindedness, the contempt, the spite that Clara felt for this other person, which probably, in my guess, would be was her spite and her contempt was fueled by her inability to have children. 
And this person was going to pay for a lot of things, <laughs> and not just the affair. Perhaps Clara Phillips had finally had enough. She had a failing marriage, a career in Hollywood that was sliding to a stop, and no children. More than a decade of violent outbursts had finally added up to this murder. Yet she didn't seem worried, even though she had to have known that she would be in trouble once she got home. Someone would surely find Alberta's body, even if Peggy didn't turn on her and go to the police. But none of that seemed to matter to Clara. It's not that they don't know the difference between right and wrong, but they don't see the harm, really, in harming individuals. They live by their own set of morals, is what I can tell. They live by their own set of morals. And as odd as this sounds, Clara did have morals. They were just particular to her. She was determined to right a wrong, to fix her marriage to armor. And now as she drove toward Peggy Caffey's apartment in Long Beach, she issued her friend one last threat. She glanced over at Peggy and remarked that her face looked pale. Peggy was clearly afraid, and Clara was concerned about getting caught. As Peggy climbed out from the car and stepped onto the street, Clara whispered something to her just as the door closed. She said, remember, don't tell your husband or I'll kill you. Peggy stepped back a bit, then turned and walked briskly to her apartment without saying a word. She was petrified because, of course, Clara knew where she lived. And now Peggy knew exactly what Clara Phillips was capable of. Peggy Caffey opened the door of her apartment and found her husband inside. It was nighttime now, and she tried to hide her fear. She wanted to tell him everything. Despite his infidelity, he was the only person she trusted. But she stopped herself for a very practical reason. Her husband had a job interview the next day, And this could upset him. No kidding. The description of her harrowing night might upset anyone, particularly a husband already on edge about an upgrade on his job. She should have called the police immediately, but Peggy's own marriage was precarious right now, and she didn't want to chance it. So Peggy Caffey stayed silent. Just like she had about an hour before as her best friend beat a woman beyond recognition on a desolate dirt road. This case would change so many lives. A young victim's family would be forced to defend her reputation in a courtroom filled with the air of misogyny. An unlikely murderer would become a star, and then later infamous. The justice system would be shaken and law enforcement would be challenged. And the Phillips family would never be the same, even nearly a century later. Janet Collins guides me around her modest one-story home in Salinas, California. Now, 3.15? Yes, ma'am. And we try to set the time on one of her many, many beautiful clocks. She was once known as Janet Elizabeth Phillips until she got married. Her parents raised her in this house. She's an icon here in Salinas. Janet and her husband were involved with city government for decades before he passed away several years ago. She continued to work into her 70s, serving the city that she loves. Then I found physically I was kind of uh, wearing out a little bit, so that took its toll. You kind of go a little bit downhill, and as the saying goes, growing old ain't for sissies, so 
<laughs> I can agree with that, yeah. Uh, that's sort of where, where I am now. I'm 88. Janet talked lovingly about her coworkers, her deceased husband, her children, and her grandchildren. But one person she didn't have good memories of was her uncle Armor Phillips. Armor was the brother of her father, Forrest Pierce Phillips. Janet knew Armor when she was younger. She didn't think much of him then, and she thinks even less of him now. What about Armor? Oh, he's pathetic, I think. He's a sad situation. It's not a very nice thing to say, but there was nothing very endearing about him that would make you very close to him. Remember that this story is about the kind of family loyalty that's mandatory, no matter the cost. Janet says her family has always been private, and they've always kept secrets, especially from each other. What anybody knew in that family, they weren't going to tell one another. But doesn't that damage the fabric of a family? You can't psychoanalyze it, and they all knew The rumors spread within the Phillips family, just like it might with any other family. A bit of drama pops up with someone, his or her immediate family finds out, and then spreads the gossip to the extended family. Soon, everyone knows, and the facts are skewed. So some of what Janet knows would be labeled hearsay in a courtroom. I think the father, their father was very, very domineering. Very. Farmer's father. Yes, I heard, but I don't know that for sure either. I just heard that a few things. Okay, so this is what's going to be interesting. When you say you heard, do you have like a source, like an aunt who kind of gossiped to you? James R. Mellon is a font of information. If you could ever get a hold of him... James R. Mellon, better known as Jay, is one of the heirs to the Mellon fortune. He is Judge Thomas Mellon's great-great-grandson. The 78-year-old has had his own share of controversy. The U.S. government accused Jay of skirting income tax by claiming he had no permanent residence. He called himself a tax protester. Forbes magazine estimates that the Mellons are worth at least $12 billion. A few years ago, Jay Mellon called Janet. They had never spoken before, and she was just one of many descendants who had no claim on the family fortune. Jay wanted to work on the family tree, and he needed information from Janet and Daniel to complete it. Yeah, and I need some names of your kids, and blah, 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 blah. So, yeah, and, and I gave him all that. And then I said, and by the way, we found armor. Oh, you did? Yeah, and he was married to, he was married to Clara. What? As they talked... Janet started to learn more about her distant cousin. There was clearly a divide between their worlds because Janet was actually a little concerned about how much their long-distance phone call was costing Jay. I said, oh my gosh, James, this is costing you a small fortune, not realizing that he wintered in Florida. Janet's house is modest, but so are virtually all of our houses compared to the Mellon homes. There was a definite split between the sides of the family that was cemented generations ago. Can you simply explain the divide between the Mellons? I believe it's because uh, they were, it was religion. I think they went split off and and, uh, they were Southern Baptists and they just moved on down south. 
Where the pole melons? <laughs> Janet and this house are also important to the story because her uncle Armour used to come by the house. It was a pit stop for him. He would chat with his brother and sister-in-law and grin at his young niece. He would show up at several really key times in his life. And Janet remembers those visits vividly. But more on that later. Now we're back to Wednesday, July 12th of 1922, and Clara Phillips's life has taken a bizarre turn. She had just dropped off Peggy Caffey in Long Beach, and she was driving back to West Los Angeles to the home she was sharing with Armour. It made Clara feel good. She dropped off Peggy and warned her not to say anything. As she pulled Alberta's car into the driveway that evening, it was nearly dark. Clara Phillips hopped out and walked toward the door as Armour watched suspiciously from the window. Whose car is that? Glenn Martin says Armour was immediately alarmed, and for good reason. Well, she arrives home in Alberta's car, and then she told Armour she was going to cook him the the best meal that he'd ever had, and then she spoke of uh, having killed Alberta. So there's absolutely no effort at cover-up on her part. No, she created a witness to her confession, basically. Peggy Caffey was there when Clara Phillips murdered Alberta Meadows, and now she was lying in bed, fretting over what to do next. Whatever she did, it would have to wait until after her husband's job interview the next morning. Clara was about to tell her husband what happened. So now two people, aside from Clara, would know about the murder of a young widow. Writer Joan Renner explains what happened next. Clara goes home and announces to Armour, and she's got blood, she's still got blood on her clothing. She announces to Armour, I'm so happy I've just killed the one you love the best. I'm going to cook you the best dinner you ever had. Daniel Phillips says it had to be one of the wildest confessions ever. It was almost like she completely disconnected from the event. And she had blood all over her. Peggy said her white gloves were covered in blood from the hammer blows. What is Armour's reaction when she comes home? What's his emotional reaction? Probably shock. You don't see your wife coming through the door looking like she's been in a boxing match with the world champion for 15 rounds, you know. She was covered in blood, and she was in a very good mood. Armour was stunned, obviously, and Clara was just so cheerful, even elated. It was disturbing, even though Clara had done so many disturbing things in the past. And the fact that she had not gone to the trouble of changing clothes, she still looked like she had been in a really bad fight. She came and said, hey, look what I did. Now our marriage, our life can continue. Let's go eat. Clara Phillips showed absolutely no remorse, no empathy about murdering Alberta Meadows. She had always acted callously toward victims of her violence in the past, including Armour. But this was so different. She was saying, well, I'm just going to go to the police tomorrow and tell them all and Everything will be fine. She had no concept that this is murder, it was a brutal murder, and they're not going to just say, well, thanks for coming by and telling us about this. 
It's definitely a, a psychopathic response to what other people would be able to say is a life-changing experience. Armour questioned her carefully, trying to stay calm. Clara was clearly unstable as she flitted about the kitchen preparing a meal. He thought quickly as his panic grew. Clara's mother was just in the next room. If she heard her daughter's voice, she might appear, and then there would be a third witness. Armour needed to do something now. He put two and two together real quick. Again, Armour wasn't dumb. He was a good con man. He knew, this is not good. I've got to get her out of here. And he still had the loyalty of a husband to do that. Because if he didn't care, he would have said, don't bother me. What do you think was the mindset there? I think Armour's mindset was probably focused on some self-preservation there. It had to have run through his head that he was at risk. And if, in fact, it was true, and there was all kinds of evidence to support the fact that what she was telling him was true. The car was there. The bloody gloves were there. I'm certain he had some concerns for his own safety. He ordered her to change her clothes and hide her bloody gloves. He told her to pack a suitcase with clothes, enough to get her through a long stay. But first, he had a plan for Alberta's Ford Coupe. He had Clara drive a car out to a remote area where they left it, and he followed her in his car. And then they went and they spent the night in a motel. They didn't want Clara's mother to sense that anything was strange. They had driven about 30 miles from L.A. to Pomona to abandon Alberta's car with the keys inside. After Clara slid into the passenger seat of the car, Armour thought he had to be calculating and maybe a bit devious. He could run away with her and live out their lives safely in another country or he could send her off on her own and continue his grifting schemes in L.A. It was a difficult choice, and there wasn't much time left. Someone would surely find Alberta's body soon. As they drove along the highway, Armour tossed the infamous hammer out the window near a stream. He drove her to a hotel in L.A. Going home wouldn't be smart. He told her to just wait and rest. Then Armour walked through the streets of Los Angeles, just thinking. Finally, he settled on a plan. He returned to the hotel on Thursday morning and collected Clara. He told her that it was time for her to go home to Texas. There was an eastbound train leaving soon. He would make sure she was comfortable. She asked if he would come along, and he said he would come a bit later. In the meantime, she had plenty of aunts and uncles to care for her. If I were Armour, I might have done exactly what he did. He got her together, put her on a train. The plan that he said that he concocted, I don't think he ever intended to go through with it, but what he told her was that we're going to meet and we're going to go to Mexico and we're going to put this behind us and start our lives anew. He was trying to get her to El Paso so she could get into Mexico. He wanted her to be able to start off a new life. He went to the ticket counter and handed the attendant some money. Armour then handed Clara the ticket and kissed her as she stepped on the train with her suitcase. And soon Clara Phillips, the killer, had vanished. Armour was hoping that he had more time to think, that perhaps Alberta would lay undiscovered for just a bit longer. Wishful thinking.
Mrs. Wirtz had driven up Montecito Drive around 4.45 that Wednesday. She enjoyed visiting with her father, who lived at the top of the hill. Author Claudine Burnett says she didn't see anything unusual on the way up. She didn't see anything there. And her father lived up in one of the new housing tracks, and she went to get him. They came down at 6 o'clock. But as they rounded a bend in the road, Mrs. Wirtz slammed on the brakes. She and her father jumped out of the car. They spotted the body, so things had happened within a short period of time. And she called in the murder. Alberta Meadows had been brutalized. There were more than 50 hammer marks on her head and face. A massive boulder pinned her arm to the ground. There was so much blood that it had soaked through her clothes. Superficial blood vessels in the head are vulnerable to trauma. Your scalp can bleed quite a lot, even from a minor cut. That was something I found out while I was researching a 1933 case for American Sherlock. In that case, a woman was found dead in a bathtub by her husband, and there was blood on every wall, including the ceiling and the floor. Police arrested her husband for beating her to death with a lead pipe. But the forensic scientist at the center of my book believed something different. So as I was writing it, I was fascinated that a victim could lose literally half of the blood in their body from just one head wound. In our story, the police arrived not long after Mrs. Wirtz and her father found Alberta. Glenn Martin explains how investigators in the 1920s would have approached the crime scene. What do the officers see kind of when they get there? What's the scene that they walk into? They saw a bloodied woman, which would have been rare in that period of time, and the rarity would have increased by the fact that it was on this barren hillside away from the populated areas of the city of L.A. Martin says that typically officers would have first checked Alberta's vitals, though I imagine that wasn't necessary. She had been butchered. She was so bloody that it was difficult to see her face. They touched Alberta's body, and it was still warm. No one knew who she was. Detectives searched for identification in the dirt on the road and in the weeds on the slope. Nothing. Clara had taken her handbag. They squatted on the ground, searching for a weapon, and they found the wooden handle of the claw hammer. Clara had the foresight to take the head of the hammer with her. It was a ghastly scene, even for a veteran investigator. And police on the hillside were already asking each other, who did this? It was just an appalling crime. If you were a cop and you rolled up on the scene and you saw this, you would not for a moment think that a woman could have committed this crime. They examined Alberta's body, hoping for clues that might point to a motive. It looks like a sex crime because she is just beaten and battered and her skirt is pulled up and her legs are kind of spread. Is that how she fell? I don't know. I wouldn't have put it past Clara to pose her just a little bit to show her disdain. This is the woman she thought was stealing her husband from her. She had nothing but contempt for her. Clearly enough hatred for her to murder her in cold blood. They wouldn't be able to examine the body for sexual assault for several hours. But of course, that wasn't what happened. It takes more time than you think to collect evidence and analyze a crime scene. Police in the 1920s didn't have crime scene investigators, just officers who hopefully had experience and a love of recording details. 
Glenn Martin says that investigators in the early 20th century had to rely on statistics, even in cases that seemed so abnormal like this one. For us, the 1920s was the most violent decade in our history. We lost 33 officers in that decade, which is about 15% of what we've lost in our recorded history. It was a horribly violent time for law enforcement. The vast majority of, of homicides are born out of relationship issues. So who is it that she's got a relationship with? If not that, you start looking at coworkers. If not that, you start looking at, is she involved in some kind of criminal enterprise? These gentlemen of the night would come and they would steal illegal liquor from these importers. There were a lot of murders, bodies that were found, their identities never known. That was what was going on in the early 1920s with Prohibition. But without being able to properly identify her body, it was nearly impossible to determine a motive. Martin says that one thing was very clear to the police on Montecito Drive in 1922. That level of violence typically speaks to a message crime. Somebody is sending a message to the victim, the victim's family, victim's colleague, business partner. A psychotic woman, a jealous woman is an option. But again, as you work through the checklist, it's not near the top of the list of options. Why is that? You're dealing with probability. You look at, you know, even at that point, murder had been studied for many years. And patterns emerge as to who commits these types of crimes. And that's just not near the top of the list of people that we know would engage in that type of crime. But psychopathy is so interesting when you're studying personality disorders. Many of the psychopaths who have participated in research are violent criminals. They're easy for experts to access because they're also in prison. Though psychopaths make up roughly 1% of the general male adult population, they make up between 15 and 25% of the males incarcerated in America. Psychopaths are 15 to 25 times more likely to commit crimes. So some psychopaths are calculating and manipulative. Most often that's associated with women with psychopathy. And some psychopaths are violent, like rage killers. Some are more methodical, like serial killers. And sometimes they're both, like Clara Phillips. Glenn Martin says that she didn't just want to eliminate her competition, she wanted to destroy her. Given what went on there, there were were certainly easier ways for Clara to commit that murder. While police worked to sort out who this dead woman was, Clara sat on a train heading toward Arizona. And Armour Phillips seemed to be in the clear. His wife was going to Texas where she could likely stay unidentified. He could decide later if he wanted to reunite with her. But something was nagging at him. It wasn't quite guilt, or maybe it was. At this time, he started to get second thoughts. His uneasiness turned to fear and more panic. His wife could be his downfall, even if she's back in Texas. Her erratic behavior was sure to kick off again. It always had. She was so unpredictable. She might tell everyone what she did because she actually seemed proud of it. He said, wait a minute, this gets me in trouble. This is obstruction of justice, aiding and abetting, all this kind of stuff. And he was smart enough to realize, I've got enough problems in my life. I don't need this added to it because I'll go to jail and I can't get out of this one. So this is self-preservation. It was reactive. He fretted about it more and more. He told Clara that they would start a new life together. 
But Joan Renner doesn't think that was ever his intention. No, I don't think so, because what he really did do once she was on that train was go to his attorney and say, I don't know what to do. What do I do? The attorney wisely advised him. He said, look, I'll accompany you, but we got to go see the DA. You can't sit on this. It's not going to end well for you if you do. They went to see the district attorney, and Armour told the story, said it was his wife. He went to the LAPD and sat down, and following his attorney's advice, he told them everything, which was to his credit. And I think part of it was self-preservation, but he also realized something might happen to her and she might get killed resisting arrest, you know, or getting into worse trouble. So I think for his overall way of looking at things, I'm her husband. I could be negatively impacted by this. I'm going to go ahead and follow my attorney's advice and tell the truth. Clara Phillips stared out the window of the train, bound for Texas. She closed the curtains to her private door. She glanced at the depot down the tracks. It was Tucson, Arizona. There would be a brief stop, and then on to El Paso. She might just get away with it, but perhaps she didn't care. She suspected that Alberta's body might not be found for a while. Clara was ready to start a new life with armor, away from flirting women and shifty schemes. Clara looked forward to Texas because there were so many possibilities for them there. What happened in California was in the past. You know, Alberta was history as far as Clara was concerned. And so the police, being the police, they uh, realized this is going to hit all the papers, and it did. Just the fact that even to this day, almost 100 years later, there are newspaper articles that you can go online and Google about this. gives you an indication on how this was different from any other criminal act of the time. So he sent you these? Yes, he did. I'm back at the house of Janet Collins, Armour's niece. Jay Mellon sent her a very large amount of newspapers about Clara. I got a few of them out and asked her to read some headlines. Okay. Police check trail of dead girl and Phillips on night before killing. Police seeking to find where accused woman's husband and victim were. On the next episode of Tenfold More Wicked... someone in her right mind who would do this in front of a, a witness and then leave the witness living. I don't think there's any doubt about her being in her right mind. She's very deliberate about what she does. She's very determined about what she does. Armour could do no wrong in her mind. So the only one left was Peggy, and that was the one that she claimed she would go after. You think she might have planned this that extensive? She didn't miss much. Everything that she did, there was both psychopathic approach. There's also a a logical thought-out approach. My new book, All That Is Wicked, is available for pre-order now in hardback and e-books. More information on the audiobook later. All That Is Wicked is based on our first season of Tenfold More Wicked. You might think you know the whole story of killer Edward Ruloff's crimes, but there's so much more. My book, American Sherlock, is also available. This has been an Exactly Right, Tenfold More Media production. Producers Jason Whaling, Alexis Amorosi, and Laura Sobel. Sound designer Eric Friend. Composer Curtis Heath. Artwork Nick Toga. 
Executive producers are Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, and Danielle Kramer. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Tenfold More Wicked and on Twitter at Tenfold More. And if you know of a historical true crime that could use some attention, email us at info at tenfoldmoremedia.com. Subscribe now on Amazon Music, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you like to listen.